Does anyone here remember the show Fear Factor? First aired like 20 years ago, so I was in, in high school watching. It was hosted by Joe Rogan before he went all Jimi Hendrix with the experience and all that. But it was this game show where contestants would have these challenges that were supposed to make them afraid. They'd do these gross or dangerous things to try and win 50 grand. And there's some really like gross things on there. I'm not necessarily recommending it, but then you'd have your run-of-the-mill stuff like eating cow brains or uh, bobbing for plums in a tub full of snakes, things like that, you know. And whoever completed the challenges the best, which if that's the fast, the most, whatever the goal was, they would win. And Rogan would say, evidently, fear is not a factor for you. Now, there aren't any cow brains or extreme feats in our passage today, but Nehemiah does go through three challenges where people are trying to make him afraid. We'll see that in verses 9, 14, and 19. His enemies want fear to be a factor for him. They want him to be afraid. They want him to give up, to stop, to quit. Now, there's a difference between us and Nehemiah. Right? He's in the Bible. We're not, for one. But God called him to this specific task in the history of redemption to provide for the protection of God's people so that what we're celebrating now, this Advent, they waited 400 years from this point on in silence where God didn't send prophets and didn't speak. 400 years later, the promised Messiah would come. That all the nations might be blessed through him. So in the grand scheme of things, if we're finding ourselves in a character in the story, we're probably more like the average Jew just working on the wall than we are to Nehemiah. And yet there are still lessons that we can learn because God calls all of us to this kingdom work. And we're tempted in similar ways. Ultimately, we have the same enemy, the father of lies, who wants to destroy us and defeat us and to thwart God's purposes. And we know this. People try to make us afraid so that we won't live faithfully. This happens throughout the Bible. It's why one of the most common commands is fear not. Be not afraid. We have such a tendency to give in to that fear, to go off course because of it. Let's see how Nehemiah responds. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together. Ahakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sam Ballot for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now, come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you, have, as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking... Their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. 
Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Meetabal, who is confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the law was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era. And his son, Jehoiakim, uh, you see it, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you reveal to us what you are doing in history, that you show us that you are at work in the midst of your people. We ask that you would help us this morning, that your spirit would enlighten our hearts and minds, that we might know what you are saying, that we might see you, that we might be changed to be more like our Savior through it, and that you would be glorified through all of this. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing on in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah has come to Jerusalem. He was a Jew in exile there. And he was with King Artaxerxes in Susa, where he was the cupbearer. And he's come back to Jerusalem in order to rebuild the wall. So in chapter 4, a couple weeks ago, we saw that he got down to work. And he persisted despite all of this external opposition. Then last week, we saw that the challenge wasn't just outside that there were internal threats as well. Within their own communities, the nobles and the officials were taking advantage of the people, that they were extorting them, that they were even selling their own people into slavery. They weren't walking in the fear of the Lord, so they did whatever they pleased. But Nehemiah comes and calls them to repentance. And by God's grace, they repent. They turn from their sin. And then Nehemiah gives us this positive example of how he lived as governor, that he was selfless and sacrificial, that he was generous with the people. So then having dealt with this internal conflict, now he turns back to the task at hand, the building of the wall. And so it might feel like last week was a little out of place, 
Right? You think they're building the wall. You take this break and then they're building the wall again. Why not finish the wall? You know? But there's a reason for it. It's a call to walk in the fear of the Lord. To walk in faithfulness. And when we do that, when we remember who God is and what he's done, then the fear of man is not a factor. So now that we have Lucy, we uh, try to find good kids' music. You know, the stuff that won't drive you absolutely crazy once you've heard it more than ten times. One of the albums that we like, her church Sunday music, is Ellie Holcomb's album Creation, or, or Sing Creation Songs is the album. And there's a song on there called Fear Not that really summarizes the motivation we see behind Nehemiah's work here, his behavior, and hopefully is the motivation behind what we do. It needs to be. The chorus goes like this. It says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Sam's singing it back there. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. For Israel and Nehemiah, they know God has called them as his people. That he has chosen them. He has redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. And now he has redeemed them most recently from exile in Babylon. They know this. They're his people. And he is their God who dwells in the midst of them. Especially in the temple that was rebuilt here. For us, on this side of the cross, we see it even clearer. That through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of God himself, Jesus Christ, on our behalf, we've not only been redeemed from slavery, but we've been redeemed from sin and death, our greatest enemies. If you trust in Christ, he has redeemed you. He has called you by name. You belong to him. He has put his name on you in your baptism. He has given his spirit to live in you, that we as his church are now his temple. We belong to him. Now we can live faithfully by his empowering spirit at work in us, changing us, sanctifying us. We don't do any of this to earn anything, but because of what God has already done, because he has redeemed us, because he has called us by name. So because of Christ, we can live in the fear of the Lord, knowing that we are safe and secure in him who loves us. And when we do that, the fear of man need not be a factor for God's people. There's no reason for us to fear. And when the fear of man is not a factor, we'll see this morning that we can keep persevering, we can keep purity, and we can keep perspective. This is your alliteration, three points. I'm Presbyterian. Persevering, purity, and perspective. First, keep persevering, keep working. This is what we see from Nehemiah in verses 1 to 9 and then 15 to 19 as well. Both of these sections involve these letters that are being sent with the intent to make Nehemiah afraid. 1 to 9, key in on Sanballat and Geshem, while 17 to 19 focus on Tobiah. So you even have those outside the community intending to scare. And then you also have Tobiah who's connected with the community intending to make him afraid. In verses 1 to 9 here, we, the enemies have heard that the wall is finished, though he says the gates haven't been hung. 
yet. So there's still these entrances that could be gone through. So Sanballat and Geshem send these four rounds of letters to Nehemiah asking him to come meet. But he says, no, what I'm doing is great work. It's important work. I can't stop what I'm doing right now to go meet you. Like best case scenario, he doesn't get hurt. It's like two days journey, meet two days back. So you're five days out, even if things go well. He says he's doing important work that shouldn't stop so he can come meet them. He knows that they want to hurt him though, but he's diplomatic in his answer. (laughs) He keeps persevering. What I'm doing is too important to stop. He won't allow himself to be distracted from what God is calling him to do. So there's a shift. Sam Ballot sends a fifth letter, fifth letter and kind of ups the ante a little bit. He sends an open letter where before the others would have been sealed, you know, the wax and the stamp, and you know it's authentic and that no one else has read it. But this one he leaves open so that others can read it with the intent that they would, so that the message will spread, that it'll go. We see this all the time these days with open letters are posted on the internet where they're writing to someone, but really they're writing so others can see that they're writing to someone. So what does it say? Look in verse 6 and 7. It's reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, so you know it's legit, that the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. You have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there's a king in Judah. And now the king, that is Artaxerxes, will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. It's meant to sow these seeds of contention. You can imagine the people, even the ones who are working. That's what Nehemiah is really up to? That's why we're doing this? It's also this very thinly veiled threat. Artaxerxes will hear of it. If you remember back to Ezra 4, a letter had been sent to Artaxerxes with similar um, complaints, and he actually did stop work on the wall at that point. So it's a real threat. But they try to make it sound, at least to those who would hear it, like they want to help. Let's talk it through and see what we can do. Let's fix it together. Though that's not the case. How does Nehemiah reply this time? None of that's true. You're just making it up. Then he prays for God to strengthen his hands as he continues persevering in the work. He doesn't let himself get pulled away from the work and go meet them. When he's lied about, he calls it for what it is, but then he doesn't pursue it. He doesn't let himself get pulled into the scandal, even if others are repeating it. He just keeps persevering. He keeps going about the work faithfully. Have you ever had someone invent or misrepresent something you've said or done to others? How do you respond to that? It's easy to want to jump in there defensive, try and fix it, to abandon what we're actually doing and get pulled down into the mud with them. Or maybe you've played a part in perpetuating these things or impugning others' motives we see here, Nehemiah just wants to be king, and that's not true at all. In our current age of these open letters in the church, so-called discernment blogs, YouTube videos, watchdogs, I think of so many examples that are akin to what Nehemiah is going through here. So I've been thinking about this this week, and 
It's especially true in our climate in these polarizing times. The godly men who have dedicated their lives to the spread of the gospel, who someone disagrees with something that they maybe misspoke or said something wrong or disagrees with the way that they're seeking to faithfully apply scripture in life, that they jump on them. They condemn them as false teachers. Even though five years ago they were buds. We're seeing this especially, I think, in the realms of social justice and how the gospel plays out in light of that or in issues regarding sexuality. As you hear about these things, how do you respond? If you're actually involved in this situation, do you pursue what the Bible calls us to for how we're to approach others if they're wrong or in sin? Most likely you're not really involved. And if you're not, instead of giving these rumors credence or even spreading them, I would exhort you to actually just pray for the people. That if they're wrong, that God's Spirit would convict them. There would be change. And that if they're being maligned like Nehemiah here, that God would protect them and strengthen their hands as they seek to live faithfully. If you have no idea what I'm talking about right now, then praise God for that. I don't know that any of us have open letters written about us or blogs about how we're out for ourselves or trying to gain power or using the gospel for our own benefit or whatever cause. It might be happening. Maybe there's blogs about me. I should Google myself. Just kidding. I don't want to Google myself. More likely, there are these consequences that we could potentially face for representing Christ faithfully. We worry about the king, right? We don't have the king, but someone who has authority or influence in our lives, what they'll hear about it and how we might suffer for it. Where might this be happening in your life? It might be at work. If you don't work, if you work in any sort of secular environment, where do you feel a hesitation to share what you believe or do something you know you're called to do? And why do you feel that hesitation? What is it that's driving that? Are you thinking about giving up on something that you've been faithfully working toward because of what someone else says about you in your work? Maybe there's truth to it, right? We need to be humble enough to honestly evaluate. But if not, will you allow the fear of others' opinions and threats to keep you from the work God is calling you to? Is that hesitation because you're afraid? And if so, of what? And we do need to be wise in how we go about things. I'm not saying be careless, right? I mean... Nehemiah set up guards so that they could be protected as they went about the work on the wall. But we can't be so careful that we don't actually get around to doing what we're called to do. Nehemiah doesn't set up everyone as guards and then never work. I feel like that's our tendency sometimes. 
to avoid it altogether, to eliminate any risk. We also have the second set of letters intent on making Nehemiah afraid in 17 to 19 there. These involve the very nobles of Judah, which maybe isn't too much of a surprise after last week. Those within the community itself are speaking about Tobiah's good deeds, and they're keeping him apprised of what Nehemiah's doing. It's not just the outsiders. It can be those on the inside who are perpetuating these things. You can imagine, oh, Tobiah, he's not that bad. He's a good guy. He's doing a lot of good things for us. He's on our side, really. The truth is, he's opposed to the things of God. He has connections with the community. He's presumably done some legitimately good things for them, but he's not really for their good. He's an opportunist. He's taking advantage of connections he has and people who owe him for his own benefit. And when someone like Nehemiah won't bend the knee, he tries to make him afraid so he'll stop. Don't know if you've ever had someone like that in your life that you've seen. But what does Nehemiah keep doing? He keeps persevering. So we get to there in that section. The wall gets finished. While there's this intimation that these oaths are the result of sin, if you remember back in Ezra-Miah, this issue of intermarriage with foreigners because they'll lead you astray, he doesn't confront the nobles like he did for their own sin in the last chapter. Instead, he ignores the veiled threats, and he doesn't give in to the fear. Fear of man should not be a factor for us who belong to God. As Paul would later write in Romans 8, he says, if God is for us, who could be against us? We need to be wise, but not fearful. Don't allow yourself to be pulled away from the work God is calling you to because you're afraid. We can address the lies. We can call them what they are, but then move on and keep working. Keep persevering. And the fear of man is not a factor. God's people keep persevering. They also keep purity. Look at me at verses 10 to 14. So Nehemiah goes to the home of Shemaiah. We don't know who he is other than here. This is it. But he's confined to his home. This is likely due to a ritual impurity. And he has a message for Nehemiah. They're coming to kill you. They're going to kill you by night. It's repeated there twice back to back. So what's his solution? We should go into the house of the Lord. We should go into the temple and we should shut the door of the temple. But Nehemiah isn't having it. He responds in verse 11. Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. We see this realistic view of himself. There's this proper pride knowing who he is. And there's also this proper humility. He's a man of God. He's working for God's purposes, for the good of God's people. Nehemiah specifically is the governor of Jerusalem as well. He knows who he is, and he knows who's on his side. Why would he run away? In essence, I'm not afraid of them. Do you know who you really are? 
Do you know who you really are in Christ? A beloved son or daughter of the king and creator of the universe who upholds all things, who is a good, good father, as the song Adrian loves so much goes, who knows how to give good gifts to his children, who is for us and not against us, the one who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? That's who we are in Christ. There's no need to be afraid. There's also this humility. Could I go into the temple and live? He acknowledges that he has no business going in there. That's work that's been reserved for the priests in the Old Testament. They're the ones that go in, not Joe Schmo for his own protection. He's not afraid of being killed by these men, but he says, how could I go into the temple and live? I would actually deserve death if I disobeyed my Lord. Sinned in this way. He's not afraid of the men, but he fears the Lord. The ends would not justify the meetings. Potentially saving your life does not justify sinning against God. Nothing justifies sinning against God. He takes sin seriously because he takes God's holiness seriously. Because of what Shemaiah suggests, Nehemiah knows that he's lying. He knows that God had not sent him. How? Because it goes against God's word. Only the priest could go in. It's not consistent with this. He sees the plot. So what does he do? If you've been paying attention, this is what we should expect Nehemiah to do by this point, which should be a hint for us as well. He prays. He asks God to remember them in what they've done. He resolves to follow God's word and leave the outcome to the Lord. There's never any retribution from Nehemiah. In chapter 4, chapter 5, or here, there isn't any. He leaves it to God. He entrusts himself and them to God who will judge justly calls on him to remember. He keeps himself pure, concerned not with the fear of man, but with the Lord. Similar thing you'll hear in 1 Peter 2 about Christ. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. But how do we know when we're being deceived? That's a good question. You might have heard this illustration before, but it's true, and I think it's helpful. So you're going to hear it again. Maybe this is new for you, though. But when the Secret Service is training people to, to combat counterfeit currency, that's what Secret Service was made for, to combat counterfeit currency, not to protect the president. But when they're training people to do that, they don't study counterfeit bills. They study the real deal. 
A video I watched put it this way I thought it was good. It said, we're not experts in counterfeit currency. We're experts in genuine currency. Then they know when they see something that's off. They know what they should see. So when it's different, it, the alarm bells go off. They know that it's fake. Likewise, we need to know God's word. We need to know what he requires of us as his people. How we can live to please him. So when we hear things contrary to it, we'll know that's the case. So the question is then, do you know God's word? All of us can answer not enough, right? But some of us, if we're honest, say, really, I don't, I don't really know what's there much at all. And that's okay if you're there right now. It's where we all start. We can't be content staying there. So if not, what steps do you need to take so that you will know it? Being here is a good start. Worshiping with God's people. Taking advantage of studies that we do. But one thing that I would suggest is that you start reading God's word. If you're not now. At least a little bit. Every day. I know we make excuses that we don't have the time or the energy we make time for the things we care about. If you're not doing it, take five minutes. Don't scroll through Facebook for that time. Put it away and start reading. We need to know God's word. We need to be more concerned with what God says than what others say. Nehemiah is not afraid of the men who might kill him. He's afraid of dishonoring his God who has chosen him, who has redeemed him, who has given him a role in the midst of his people. Nehemiah is concerned about his purity, his holiness before God, not what others around him say. Where might you be tempted to sin? Because it seems as though it might protect you or make things easier. It might be the little lie that makes us look better than we are. It might be drinking too much so that we'll fit in with the people we're around. It might be affirming sin in others instead of calling what it is because we're afraid they'll think we don't love them. It's a lot of things. What are those things for you? We have to be more concerned with what God cares about. The one who loved us and gave himself for us. Than being afraid of what other people might think or do. We must pursue purity and holiness. And it's only when the fear of man is not a factor that we can do that. When the fear of man is not a factor, God's people keep persevering. They keep purity and they keep perspective. Our passage began in verse 1 with the wall being finished, but the gates aren't hung yet. Then verse 15, we hear that the wall was finished in only 52 days, which is crazy. If you remember chapter 3, like something like 41 groups of people working on a mile length of wall 
while people are threatening to attack them and they have to have half the people guarding them in the middle of it. It's crazy that they get it done. And part of that is the reason for this flip. right? They, the people there have been trying to make Nehemiah afraid. But now the nations are afraid. Why? Because they perceived that the work had been accomplished with the help of our God. The ones Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem had gathered together to intimidate, to mock, to scare, to make them afraid, are now afraid because they've seen the hand of God at work in his people. The irony of it. But now Nehemiah's task is finished, right? I don't even know why there are more chapters in the book. He should just stop. He can just rest easy, right? Nope. The wall was never the point. God's people rightly worshiping their God in the place that he has caused his name to dwell, that his name might be glorified among the nations. That's the point. That's what it's all about. That's what this wall is all about. It's so much bigger than the wall. That's why we see Nehemiah continue to work in chapter 7. He makes sure people are appointed to the right things, protection and worship. He gives directions about when the gates should be opened. And we see this statement of the work that needs to continue. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. And no houses had been rebuilt. There's still this work to be done. If you're like me, it's easy to get caught up in whatever task you're trying to accomplish and get this tunnel vision to forget about the big picture, to forget about other things that are going on. Demands all of your attention. But we can't lose sight of what God is ultimately doing. We can't lose sight of this bigger perspective, this bigger picture. Not if we're going to actually work faithfully in these smaller things that do need to be done. Because ultimately God is making all things new. He's making them the way they were meant to be before sin entered into this world and corrupted everything. And so we can recognize the importance of the tasks that we have. They do matter. But we can recognize, we can remember that it's not how successful these individual things are, how successful my ministry is. It's not about growing Emmaus Road or having the best small groups. Those matter only insofar as they contribute to God's kingdom growing in both breadth and depth, that God is being glorified in the midst of it. The people are knowing him and loving him more deeply. People are coming to trust in him. I mean, Nehemiah's wall doesn't exist today. And yet it mattered, and God used it to accomplish his purposes, ultimately in preserving his people that his son might come. But it's about more than that. There's more going on. God is doing bigger things. When we keep that perspective, then we can work faithfully in the smaller tasks we have. When the fear of man is not a factor, we won't be so nearsighted and get so caught up and bogged down by the challenges we face. Instead, we can keep this perspective 
knowing we can persevere because we belong to God, the creator and sustainer of all, who's restoring all things, who will bring our work to its completion. When we fear God and not man, we can keep that perspective, knowing his purposes will be accomplished. I love this quick description of Hananiah in chapter 7 here. Hananiah, who wasn't mentioned before, but now he's given more responsibility. And see this description. He was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. By God's grace, may we be like him. May we be more faithful and God-fearing. And we can keep persevering. We can keep purity and we can keep perspective. That we might be fruitful for God's kingdom until the day where we do see him face to face.